All right. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Seven Innings podcast. Uh, we've got a great show lined up this week. I'm Michelle Smith. We're joined by Kayla Bro, Maddie Shipman, Jenny Dalton-Hill, and Jen Schroeder. So we've got all the softball knowledge in our minds, and I can't, can't wait to share it with you. Uh, we're going to talk about the Hogs Gone Wild, Bedlam. Jessel Allo is going to be joining us, uh, talking a little bit about what she's been up to and how things are uh, wrapping up for the WPL that will be coming up this summer. Uh, we're going to talk about the brilliant Bruins, the Knowles, Who's bubblicious and who's bubble-ish? We'll talk a little bit about the difference between those two <laughs> in a bit and lots of other good softball stuff. So, of course, uh, we're going to shag some stats at the end, um, but let's get started. Let's go ahead and start off uh, in the one spot and talk a little bit about the Hogs and the Hogs Gone Wild. They had an outstanding weekend. They took two of three from Tennessee. They snapped a nine-game winning streak that the Knolls were on leading into that series. Um so it was an interesting weekend uh, in, in general uh, in the SEC. Alabama won two or three from LSU. Donnie Goburn threw a no-hitter against Auburn. And then Maddie Penta turned around and threw a no-hitter on Sunday herself against South Carolina. So that was a, that was a crazy, uh, crazy series as well. And how about Mississippi State? They swept Kentucky. What is going on? Um, all right, Kayla, Maddie, what do you guys got that's going on in the SEC? Well, I wanted to start off with that Tennessee-Arkansas series because I think a lot of us had questions surrounding Tennessee's pitching staff going into that weekend and how they were going to use Ashley Rogers. Of course, she came out in in game one and looked lights out. I think that she's looked so effortless with how she releases her rise ball this year. It's really impressed me. And she can just pinpoint locations better than a lot of pitchers across the country. Uh, They threw Peyton Gottschall in game two. Ultimately, Arkansas comes back and wins that game after back-to-back home runs from Kylie Halverson and Christina Foreman. In game three, there was a part of me that wondered, are they going to come back with Ashley Rogers? Because I have a feeling as we get into the postseason, they might have to throw her more than one game in a weekend or do they go with the freshman? Ultimately, they went with Carlin Pickens. And I don't know about you guys, but I thought she threw fantastic. She made one mistake to Arkansas's arguably their best hitter in the lineup. Um, so that's obviously not something any pitcher wants to do. And that's Ryland Hedgecock, and she blasted it out of the park. But I thought it was a really good appearance by Pickens, and they ended up bringing in Rodgers for what? And at that uh, and at that and a half, I think they pulled Pickens in a 2-0 count. Uh, so kind of interesting to see how Tennessee is going to use their pitching staff moving forward. But I was really impressed with the energy that Arkansas brought this weekend. And taking two from Tennessee is no easy feat. Yeah, without a doubt. And you talk about energy. Bogle Park was fantastic. I think they set an attendance record this weekend. In fact, I know they set an attendance record this weekend for a three-game series. But I thought it was really cool, Maddie. And you kind of touched on this. But starting two freshmen in a game three of a series that has really big-time postseason implications. For Hannah Kamenzin, I thought she was really fantastic. She offsets Shanice Dell so well. She's that lefty. She's got that really cool curveball. And then you have Shanice Dell that can come in and close it out, who has, I think, one of the best right ball drop ball, drop ball combos in the game. I mean, the fact that you're seeing a Shanice Dells come in high pressure situations, we all know she's cool, calm, collected, but her ability to shut it down. And I think as the season continues to get better, the movement on her pitchers continues to look better. And if you watch her on TV, like she doesn't necessarily look like the most outstanding pitcher in the country, but when you're in the box, when you see her live in person, her ball has fantastic break movement and deception. So I think that was really cool. Um, again, we talk about it all the time, Maddie, like, why do you let the best player beat you? I mean, I don't know um, <laughs> in that situation, why you let Ryland Hedgecock. The 2-0 uh, count too, wasn't yeah. it? Yes. Yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, Maddie and I talk about that all the time. Why are, you, why are we letting the best player beat? You know, she's got home run potential. But other than that, I thought it was just a completely really, really good series. Um, I thought the LSU Alabama series was also super competitive, great pitching in the circle. We saw some fantastic work from Montana Fouts. I thought Allie Kilponen looks looked better than she has all season long. She'd been struggling as of late, but I thought she did a really nice job against the tide. And then of course you get Ashley Prangy and then you get Bailey Dowling, you get a couple of big shots. That's all you need. I think Alabama's to the point in the season. Montana's going to pull the weight on her shoulders. You just need a couple hitters in the lineup. Allie Shipman, why don't you call up your sister, get a couple of key hits here and there. That's all they need at this point. It's Montana, a little bit of offensive help. That's good. That's what's going to take them, Maddie. 
Hey, you know what? Allie's just looking for those chest bumps from Montana after those big wins. So she's always, she loves the chest bumps. And, uh, and no, I was really impressed with, again, Montana, nothing, nothing new. I think we're seeing her get better and better as this year goes on. And the finesse with the rise ball and the off speed and the drop ball, it, it makes her so difficult to hit. But to your point, Kayla, I was really impressed with LSU and not just their pitching staff, but their offense. I, I kind of like how they've got that sweet balance of speed and power. And when you get Taylor Pleasance back in the the lineup taking full swings. I know statistically her numbers didn't jump off the page this weekend, but she hit so many hard line drives to the outfield that just happened to go straight to somebody. So I think for somebody who's battling back from injury, for her to be able to hit the ball hard on a consistent clip against good pitching, I think that's great signs for LSU moving forward. Uh, the other series that was crazy to me uh, was that Mississippi State and Kentucky series. I think it was game two, Mississippi State went off and hit five home runs. Madison Kennedy with two home runs. Shay Moreno had a grand slam on the weekend. But I feel like this is kind of Mississippi State's MO. They start to get hot at the end of the year. We've seen that the past couple of seasons from them. Yeah, they, to me, seemed like they were kind of like dead in the water out of contention for the NCAA postseason. You know, if they heat up, if they go sweep their next series, maybe win a couple games in the NCAA, or excuse me, in the SEC tournament, they could have a shot. And, and what I appreciated about that, you're talking about some of the seniors that came through, Chloe Malaulu, big time home run, Jackie McKenna, uh, Shay Moreno, all of those seniors, it's their final weekend playing at home. They get uh, big opportunities. And I think they also set a record. They had 10 home runs in the series against Kentucky. That's the most they've ever hit in an SEC series ever. Well, and speaking of home runs, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Julia Cottrell, who hit four home runs this weekend against Missouri, whose dad is on the Missouri coaching staff. So I thought that was a really cool dynamic this past weekend. A&M ended up winning the series against Missouri. All right. Good stuff, ladies. A good roundup of what was going on in the SEC this uh, past weekend. So that's going to roll us into the two spot and we're going to talk about Bedlam. Bedlam returns. JDH, uh, this will be interesting. Uh, chatting a little bit about the Big 12. Obviously, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State uh, in any matchup is is always um, chaos. Uh, Oklahoma State won two of three against Texas Tech. Oklahoma swept Kansas. In fact, Kansas scored just two runs off of uh, Oklahoma on the weekend. And uh, Baylor, uh, they actually, Iowa State beat uh, Baylor two of three. So it was a little surprising about that. Baylor and Texas will square off next weekend because Texas was off. But um, JDH, what what are you looking for uh, in Bedlam coming up uh, this weekend? Well, I think we need to talk mainly about Oklahoma State because they had been scoring runs in bunches about six, seven, eight games ago. They had 13 run rule wins. They had 18 shutouts and uh, they're second in big 12 in defense, second in RBI, second in runs scored. So they've been putting up a ton of runs and then the bats went quiet before the Texas tech series. They want to went on a five game losing streak. And in those five games, not one home run was hit and they've really found a lot of success with the long ball. So for me, it was, where did the bats go? Um, They only pushed across seven runs in those five games. They were able to snap out of it against Texas Tech. Huge bats coming alive in that one. Three home runs in that game. Morgan Wynn, Michaela Wark, and Claire Tim all coming away with big home runs and not solo shots. They had runners on. And that's the key to winning is making sure that you get the timely hit with runners in scoring position. And game two, they went back to their old ways. They, the timely hit was the issue again. They left seven runners on base. They, they lost four to three in extra innings. And then game three found the big hits again, five doubles, one home run. So my question to this crew this week, because this is a hitting crew, Michelle, sorry, you did hit, but I'm going to throw this out to the hitters is hitting contagious. I get asked that by my play-by-play all the time. I 100% believe hitting is contagious. Maddie, Kayla, Jen, where do you guys, where do you guys fall in that debate? It's 100% contagious. And I think from a hitting standpoint, when you know you've got people in front of you and behind you that can get the job done, it just relieves pressure off of your shoulders. I think we hear that a lot of times about these players maybe going up there, putting too much pressure on themselves. One way to alleviate pressure is if you have a bunch of players in the order that are able to get the job done. Yeah, I think it's positive affirmation. Somebody in front of you gets a hit, you see it, she can do it, I can do it. 
You know, guys, after Oklahoma State dropped that series or dropped that game to Iowa State, I was at that Wichita State game. And I was talking to Kenny before the game, and he said, was with Terry, he's like, Jen and Terry, you know, I've never been the head coach of a team that's been supposed to win these big games, that has been ranked in the top three, top four at the time. And he said that that loss to Iowa State felt like we lost 10 games. And I think when your head coach is thinking like that, when I watched that Wichita State game, I felt like the hitters looked like that. So yes, hitting is absolutely contagious, but I also think a mindset of pressure is just as contagious on the flip side. I think you guys are exactly right. I love all of your perspectives in that way because pitching or hitting, definitely. I love the positive affirmation of the person in front of me. If the person in front of me strikes out or gives a weak pop-up, it does put pressure on my shoulders. And that's where you saw Oklahoma State in that five-game losing streak. They just couldn't string them together. Games one and three of that Texas Tech series, 19 hits, eight doubles, and four home runs. The game that they lost, They only pulled out five hits, no extra base hits. So they just couldn't figure it out. And I need them to get hot at the end of the season. And I need them to get rolling. Um, Texas Tech, back to their old stuff, using multiple pitchers in every game. It's the MO that they've been pulling out this year. Um, But what was the common thread in all of their losses this season? No home runs in any of them, except against Maryland. If they win, they've hit a home run. So this team finds confidence in the long ball. Seven of their nine losses have been in extra innings or by one run. This team got its 40th win of the season against Texas Tech, their third consecutive year of pulling out a 40-win season. But if their goal is Oklahoma City and the Women's College World Series, they're going to have to find the timely hit. It doesn't have to be the long ball, but this Texas Tech team definitely likes to score with that one. Oklahoma on the other side, we know all about them. They lead batting average, runs, home runs, RBI, slugging. I mean, you could name them all, right? Oklahoma knows how to score. Um, But then on the other side, they're so well-rounded. They lead in ERA. They've given up the fewest walks, the fewest doubles, the fewest triples, the fewest home runs. Oh, and they have the highest fielding percentage. So if it comes down to how does this Oklahoma team and Oklahoma State shape up, well, It looks like Oklahoma State's the one on the defensive because they're going to have to out hit the most dominant hitting team in the country. Michelle? Yeah, really good stuff, ladies. Um, And if hitting is contagious, well, we know that Oklahoma is highly, uh, highly uh, affected, right? And um, highly contagious to their own teammates. And so uh, it it will be interesting to see uh, how that series go down. What's up, JDH? Well, and if you think about it, we know Jocelyn Allo set the tone for them last season. Offensively, they hit 155 home runs. Compare that to this year where they've only got 88 as a team. I say only because 155 is a bazillion. But when you look at the rest of their stats, they're hitting with better average. They have a higher fielding percentage. And right now their ERA is lower. So they're setting themselves up for a really good postseason run. Yeah, this is a really strong uh, Oklahoma team. And and speaking of Oklahoma and the uh, the previous uh, home run queen, Jen Schroeder, you uh, had the opportunity to talk to Jocelyn Allo. Yeah, moving down to number three in our lineup card. I got to sit down with Jocelyn yesterday. We got to catch up about what she's doing. She's going to play for Team USA this year. She's going to compete for the Oklahoma Spark. And she had a little message for her Sooners coming up for this Bedlam series. So let's take a listen. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Jocelyn Allo, NCAA softball home run queen. Jossie, it's been almost a year since we've seen you put on that Oklahoma Sooner uniform. Tell us, what have you been up to? Um, As of now, I've just been training and really trying to stay in shape for the spark coming up this summer. And man, I'm just ready to go. Just watching all this softball all around. It's like, put a freaking bat in my hands. I'm ready to hit. How do you feel about your Sooners this year? Oh, man, you know how I feel about my Sooners. I think they're going to win every single time. But uh, no, they're looking good. It's definitely sad watching and being on the sidelines and stuff. But I love being their number one fans and just watching them flourish and do different things every single year. So I'm excited. What's that transition been like for you? You come off this Epic collegiate career, setting the home run record, getting drafted number one overall in the WPF draft. 
Now you get to watch another team, the team who you've been suiting up for for the past five years, compete. What does it feel like? It's definitely different. And sometimes like I get into the fan mindset of things and I'm like, oh, they're kind of scaring me right now. But like my player mindset is like, like, shut up, we're going to win the game, you know? So um, it's definitely different, like, just sitting on the sideline. But like I said, um, I like what Coach Gasso is doing, and it's kind of cool to watch from afar to see them really succeed. And I don't see them day in and day out. So it's good just to see kind of everything come into fruition for them. Big weekend this weekend, Bedlam, Oklahoma versus Oklahoma State. Do you have any big memories about what Bedlam meant to you? Um, I think one of my most favorite memories was the 21 Bedlam series playing all three games at their place was different that year because they had switched it over to not one at our place, one at their place. So playing playing at Cowgirl Stadium was a really hard place to play. But man, it was so fun to play there. Ended up dropping the first game. And that was when the Big 12 championship was on the line. So we were like backs to the wall like are we gonna fight and then came out on top and did it at their house too but man bedlam is just so fun like even playing bedlam at the world series in 19 that was insane on the biggest stage to have a bedlam like you there's no better feeling i just got goosebumps thinking about that (laughs) world series matchup because that was epic all right Right. you have a message to your sooner girls coming up for this weekend what's what's your pump up talk to them um, I guess not really a pump up talk because I'm trying to get into like the player's mindset right now, but just go out there, do your guys thing, put the first one in your pocket, let then do, do a job, do a job. I love it. You sound like a future coach Gasso. Hey, maybe, maybe. <laughs> uh, all right. Congrats on making the USA team. Is that something that you are going to be doing this summer wearing team USA? Oh, across yes. Your chest? Yeah, I'm so excited to go to Ireland this summer. And my parents are already like, we've booked our flights. And I was like, we haven't even booked our flights yet. But man, I'm excited to put those three letters across my chest and to play for the Spark too. First summer um, with Spark, second summer of WPF. And WPF just continues to grow year in and year out. And I'm excited for what the future holds too. So I'm definitely taking care of here in the professional realm now. And the Sparks going to be playing at Hall of Fame Stadium. Will we see you in the stands at Hall of Fame Stadium cheering on your Sooners? Oh, yeah, for sure. I wouldn't miss it for the world. Mm-mm. All right. Well, thanks, Jossie. We appreciate you being on. It's so good to see your face and hear your voice. Thank you. Appreciate y'all. It was so great to sit with her. Guys, I don't know about you, but she told me she's going to be at the World Series this year. And seeing her outside of the dugout, not in a uniform, I'm wondering, one, how much security is she going to have at Hall of Fame Stadium and what her autograph line is going to look like there? Is that going to be as weird for all of you as it is for me to get to see her outside of the dugout? It's, I feel like it's going to kind of remind me of Kat Osterman in the stands last year. I feel like whenever play, when play had stopped in between innings, Kat had a line going all the way up the stands, like on the stairs, everybody lined up, but it's going to be, it's going to be pretty crazy because we we think of Jocelyn Allo. And of course we think about the Oklahoma Sooners. So for her to be there though, we, we typically see a bunch of very uh, high profile Oklahoma alumni in the stands whenever Oklahoma does make it to the world series, it seems like year after year. All right, moving on down to number four in the lineup card, Brilliant Bruins. And no, everybody, I did not title this one. This was Robin, our producer. It was not me. Uh, UCLA, currently on a 21-game win streak, clinched the Pac-12 title. They have swept the last five series. And I don't know if you guys remember, but I think it was six series ago, I came on this podcast and I said, UCLA is going to drop a game of series. I said it. Since then, they have not lost. And this weekend, to me, was dominant. Utah is a team that I wouldn't want to face in the postseason. They're really good. And they had two run run rule wins over them. They were dominant in the way that they competed against them. Um, They're done. They have a bye. They're going to go to their first Pac-12 tournament in Tucson later. But the Bruins are rolling at the right time, and they're playing really solid softball. But for me, taking a look this weekend, it's going to be about Washington and Stanford. 
Washington is a team that currently sits in second place in the pack, but Stanford has the number three RPI in the country right now. Both of these games on Friday and Saturday are going to be on our ESPN family of networks, um, ESPNU on Friday, ESPN2 on Saturday. Danielle Laurie is going to be on that call. And later on this podcast, we're going to kind of talk about who's on the bubble. For me, neither of these teams are on the bubble, but they are on the bubble of potentially hosting top eight, top 16. And so when we start to get towards the end of season, I really look at the the last matchups and Washington Stanford is really sticking out to me. It's glaring. Um, I feel like Washington has the upper hand here, despite the fact that Stanford is the number three RPI. Washington is finding ways to win softball games. That's it. And at the end of the year, that's what matters. Stanford, obviously, from a pitching standpoint, incredibly low ERAs. They get it done in the circle. But when it comes to winning the big game, they're just not getting it done. Um, Kayla, I know you have your eyes on Utah, Oregon, which is another incredible season that to me has a lot of postseason implications on the line. Yeah, I I first want to go on record and say Jen absolutely did call our producer and say, please name this section Brilliant Bruins. Like she's lying to everyone. Um, no, you, I, you would, you would. <laughs> um, no, I think it's going to be a fantastic week in the pack. I think it's really interesting. Number one, cool that UCLA has punched the first ticket and number one seed to that Pac-12 tournament, and I, I'm so excited to see that. So, first of all, awesome. Also, little nugget about UCLA, Jen. I think they're playing their best defense right now. They've been struggling defensively this season. They played clean defense pretty much all weekend long, and they made some fantastic defensive plays. So um, side side note, uh, this is a really interesting weekend, like you said, looking forward to Pac-12 play, because what you have, UCLA is done. You have every Pac-12 team with a winning record playing each other. So Washington, Stanford, Oregon, Utah, and then all of the teams with a losing record are playing each other. So to me, the bottom games don't really make that much of a difference, but those top ones in terms of seeding, regional, super regional host positions, that makes these games really amped up. And I look for the Oregon Ducks. They're on a 13-game win streak. If they win the series against Utah, that could secure a spot for me in the top 16 host spot. And what they've been able to do lately – They've taken care of business. They've swept ASU, Arizona, and Cal, so some of the bottom-tier teams in the Pac-12. They've swept all those games. Uh, They took one game from UCLA, one game from Washington, one game from Stanford. So they haven't done as well with the upper tier. But if A can go beat an upper-tier Pac-12 team, I think that makes a huge difference. And I'm looking at a a superstar, Ali Bunker. You need somebody that's going to play up to the level of being a championship regional, super regional host caliber team. For me, that's going to be Allie Bunker. Uh, She's hitting over 500 in her last six games with home run, 11 RBI. She's really, really solid. Like she's the one that needs to come through. I think about the impact of a Skylar Wallace, a Maya Brady, somebody that can change a game. That's Allie Bunker for the Oregon Ducks. So for them this weekend, Utah's going to score a lot of runs offensively. I think it's going to be a little bit of a slugfest. I think I'm going to go in favor of the Ducks just because they are playing in Eugene. The Jane is a really great environment. They bring a lot of fans. And uh, the other thing that I would really like to see Oregon do is they have 68 stolen bases this season. Push the tempo. Get Utah on your heels. Really, really make it difficult um, for them to deal with you defensively. But no, this Going back to you, Jen, it's going to be a stellar weekend in those two series. And I'm looking for, I can't, I'm like going to be locked in all weekend on those games. Yeah. I mean, the pack to me this season has been some really fun softball to watch. There's been some really good matchups. Now, one little note about Allie Bunker. I'm still mad that she is not a player of the year candidate because to me, she 100% deserves to be on that list. She just turned pack 12 player of the week this past week. And you're right, Kayla. Uh, if if they want to win, it it comes down to Ali Bunker. Um, and also, it's a little threat against Utah with the catcher because it's one of my catchers, both sides, Oregon and Utah. So I feel like you kind of zung that one in there. I, I gotcha. I'm, <laughs> you you all the, I'm coming at you in all different yeah, ways. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and then one little note about the bottom half of the pack, as you mentioned. So currently, ASU and Oregon State are sitting under 500. So probably not looking for uh postseason here, but Arizona, Jenny, your Wildcats, they're currently five games over uh 500. They finish out this weekend and then 
they host the very first Pac-12 tournament. So for me, when we talk about a bubble team, uh, you don't normally have the Arizona Wildcats in that uh, section, but I am, I'm nervous for them. I'm, I'm really nervous for them, Jenny. No, I'm nervous for them too, Jen. And to see the way that this season has played out, definitely not the way that Caitlin Lowe, the head coach for Arizona, would have scripted it. But they are definitely excited to host the first ever Pac-12 tournament. And they've planned some pretty cool things. I've been chatting with Kinsey Fowler. And uh, there's a lot of cool stuff that they're going to be putting on the video board for the Pac-12 tournament. So if you're close to there, you're going to definitely want to check that out. It's it's Jenny. Did you send them a message? Is the cool thing really you talking? Yes, but they're getting someone from every school, which I think is really cool. I haven't done it yet. So I've done my hair. So maybe that'll help. I don't know. All right. Really good stuff. Um, and, and, and by the way, ladies, what you're talking about, I think about it, um, Oregon State, Arizona, both made it to the Women's College World Series last year, and they're both in that uh, zone where, well, for Oregon State, they have to win the Pac-12 tournament in order to qualify for the postseason because they are below 500, and um, Arizona is, uh, she, they, they are on that um, that bubble. They're bubble-ish. Again, we're going to get to that in the seven hole. So we'll talk a little bit about that uh, coming up. Really good stuff. All right, let's go ahead, uh, go ahead and round down into the five hole. And we're going to talk about the Knowles. Knoll power, a little bit of a ACC update. Florida uh, State, they swept Notre Dame. They looked really good. Um, the last two games, they uh, they did it so in run rule fashion. Uh, what's going on with Clemson? They lost to Liberty and Virginia Tech twice. So they lost two of three to Virginia Tech. They have lost um, seven of their last 15. So they're eight and seven in their last 15. They um, they lost four of their last 10. So talk a little bit about Clemson here coming up. Duke Sweat Pitt, uh, they will be off this weekend. Louisville, they swept BC. And they're now in the second spot in the ACC. Whew. There's some, again, there's some craziness going on this year. Um, a lot of interesting storylines developing in the ACC as we approach the postseason, along with the ACC tournament themselves coming up. Um, there should be some pretty big ramifications that will uh, set the tone for the seating in the NCAA tournament. Um, so, again, we'll talk a little bit about that more in the seven spots. But, JDH, what are you seeing uh, in the in the ACC this year? Well, we know that Florida State is that perennial power. They are always the one that we circle thinking that they're going to be the one that takes not just the regular season championship, but also the conference tournament title. They did it last season, but Louisville has come out of nowhere. I did not expect Louisville to come on so strong this season. They're sitting at 16 and four in the ACC behind Florida State, who is 19 and two. So Everybody out in Twitter land can tell me that I did my math wrong if I did it wrong. But I think if Louisville sweeps this series, they can clinch the regular season title. So to me, this is a huge series for Louisville, not just is in a way, but they can put an exclamation point on their regular season heading into the ACC tournament. Because if Louis- if Florida State's able to grab one of those games, Florida State wins the title. But if Louisville can come in strong and behind the bat of Taylor Roby, who is tied for first in the country in home runs with Taryn Kern of Indiana. If she's able to step up in the circle and do well pitching wise and also bring the big heavy bat, it's going to be a really interesting series. Knowing that Florida state is not really the team that relies on the long ball. They love doubles. They lead the country in doubles. They lead the ACC in walks and stolen bases. They love to create chaos by putting runners in motion and putting pressure on the defense um, the biggest disparity between these two teams is Louisville's ERA. It sits at a 3.04, while Florida State has Catherine Sandercock, and that squad is throwing at a 1.68 ERA. So it's going to be tough for the Louisville hitters against the arms in the circle for Florida State. Then we go to Clemson. This is, I, I, I don't know if I should talk about it completely in this, in this part of the lineup, or if I need to hold on to it for the bubble conversation, because right now Clemson sits with an RPI of 16. Now RPI and rankings, we, we were discussing this before that we started recording the podcast, but RPI and rankings are not similar this year. Rankings is that eye test where we see where teams are winning and losing. RPI is not necessarily correlated to that eye test. So Clemson right now series loss to Virginia tech 
is not the right message to be sending at this point to the committee, a team, Virginia Tech, with an RPI of 23. So the Sunday series finale was a big one for the program and for John Rittman. Clemson claimed its 150th program win, and John Rittman earned his 900th coaching win. It was a hard-fought series, um, and after a year where both of these teams hosted the postseason last year, unless one of these two steps up in the ACC tournament and makes a statement, I can see both of these teams out of the hosting conversation at the end of the year. Um, Virginia Tech's given up a bunch of home runs this season, third most in the conference, and Clemson capitalized on that. And all but one run was scored by that was scored by Clemson in the series was scored via the home run. So Clemson's two losses, they struggled to piece together hits and drive in runs. Another conversation about is hitting contagious. And it seems that Clemson is holding true to that. Um, Both Mackenzie Clark and head coach John Rittman were ejected in game two after a huge collision at home plate. Clark was Clark trucked Virginia Tech's Jamie Bailey in a rundown situation. They went to video review and ejected Mackenzie Clark. John Rittman, who is very calm, cool, and collected, was not calm, cool, and collected. And he went out and let the umpires know that he was not happy. <laughs> and so they sent him packing. But um, the best news of the day was Jamie Bailey was okay. And Clemson found a hot freshman bat off the bench replacing Mackenzie Clark. Jaden Rizkowski came in off the bench, entered the game, just her 10th appearance of the year, hit a home run. And the first of her career and only the only run of the game for Clemson in that 3-1 loss. Because of that performance, they put her in the next day. What'd she do? Oh, you know, no big deal. Just another home run. Love to see those bats off the bench coming in and setting the tone for the rest of the squad. Um, Clemson pitching has given up more home runs in the last 10 games than the entire rest of the season. So Valerie Cagle has given up three of those eight. They're off this weekend to finish up finals and they'll head to the ACC tournament at Notre Dame next week. All right. Really good stuff, JDH. Um, I believe Florida State's magic number is one. I think if they win even just one game against Louisville, they clinch the regular season uh, in the ACC, which I know Lonnie Alameda was uh, was big on. Um, yep. Go ahead, JDH. Well, and another another big news in the ACC, Syracuse was able to sweep Virginia and that solidified a spot in the ACC tournament. Prior to that series, they were not going to make it to the ACC tournament. So kudos to them to be able to come away with a big series win and push their way into the ACC tournament. That's right. And again, uh, positive ramifications. Anytime you're in that tournament, a lot of those um, conferences, you win the tournament, you get the AQ, the automatic qualifier into the uh, postseason. So really good job wrapping up the ACC. Jen, what do you got next? Well, one little note, I'm just going to give an opinion here. I did not think that was obstruction. If anyone wants to know, Maddie, I've been dying to get your opinion. Kayla is pointing at me. Just like, let's take two seconds here. But was anyone as mad about that as I was? Are we talking obstruction in Tennessee, Arkansas? Are we talking the Mackenzie Clark play? Well, I'm talking about both to be, to be okay, honest. Okay, both. Uh, well, we know how I feel about obstruction, and I did not think it was obstruction in the Tennessee-Arkansas game because I, I just think it completely negates a wonderful throw in by Kiki Malloy. And from a catcher perspective, I don't know where else you're supposed to put yourself. And also, I thought she was hosed. I mean, she was out by, what, two steps? Like, yes. that's an eternity in real softball time. So I thought she was hosed. And I think that when I watched the the Clemson play with Mackenzie Clark, I don't think there was any intent. I think that the play just kind of ran into where she was running. So I was really surprised that she was ejected. And I don't fault Coach Rittman for having the reaction that he did either, because I didn't think that she did anything that was ejection worthy. So basically, in a nutshell, I don't agree with either one of those. I thought they were both softball plays and the umpires are interfering with just two good softball plays. I obviously understand like the collision was uh, aggressive, but I don't think, again, there was intent there. It was just a natural, I'm running hard. I'm trying to throw you out, like make a play at the plate. Like, I think we just should have let both of those play as they were and not all of a sudden change the outcome because the umpires thought, again, they're two quality softball plays. Like let the, let them play, let them play. I I agree with you a hundred percent, Kayla and Maddie. And I think that the thing that, Two things that I real quick want to say. 
There's a difference between intentional contact and incidental contact when two elite athletes are fighting for a ball in the plate or a, or a bag or a base. So, so that's, that's one thing. And when it's incidental, um, you know it. And when it is intentional, you know it as well. Um, so that's one. And then the, the, the second thing to your point, Maddie, about Kiki Malloy's throw, that throw was on the money and there needs to be a clause or an asterisk in the rule that states the out by a mile. And if you're out by a mile, then <laughs> once it, it doesn't matter, they should be out by a mile. So, and I think there is there that part of the rule where they say like out by a reasonable distance, but I think what the rule book terms a reasonable distance is like halfway in between the base paths, which typically just isn't, you're not going to see that that's not going to happen. But I think what we're all saying, what we all agree with, what a reasonable distance is in real softball playing time is like, a step or two. I mean, that, that to me, you're hosed by a mile on that play. And it was what, two steps away when she started to slide into home. But I think what you're seeing is coaches sending runners home because the odds are they're going to get that obstruction call and they're going to get the rule. Well, 100% Maddie. I couldn't agree more. Sorry, Jenny. I know you want to input here, but I feel like they tried to change the obstruction rule to take out uh, an opinion. And because of that, they've now put it in the coach's hand to just send the runner because more times than not, they're getting the obstruction call. So a coach is actually using the rule to their advantage. And I don't necessarily think that's fair, Jenny. No, you're exactly right. And I think the two obstruction calls are very different that happened. The one is a play at the plate from an outfield throw where a catcher has to set up and give access to the plate. The other, the Clemson one, was a rundown situation with a first baseman covering. And so when you're in a rundown situation, you're not camped at the plate. You're actually inside those bases. And so Mackenzie Clark, there's no way she can slide that far away from the plate. So there's no way to get down or avoid the runner or the defender because you're so far away. You have to be aggressive to the, to the base. I don't know. I see both of these from both sides, honestly, but I don't see the obstruction in both of these calls. Same. If you guys can tell, I could sit here and talk about obstruction yeah. for about an hour. We could have an entire Same. podcast dedicated to obstruction. <laughs> Same. And you, you guys should have seen my DMs and mentions because I think people know I'm so mouthy and passionate about it. And our producer, Robin, here is, is giving us a message. She should have made it a topic. And I was going to text her and tell her, and she's probably never going to let me lead subjects again because here I am just inputting what I wanted. <laughs> So let's move on down to number six on our lineup card, which I think she did the best one naming this one. It's turn you dig it. And I feel like I need to sing it or rap it a little bit, but um, we're going to move on to the big 10 here. So Northwestern clinched to share the title. They're 10 and 0 at home in conference, which I, which I think is noteworthy. They finished this weekend at Rutgers, but the biggest story here in the big 10 to me is Indiana. Um, they're led by Shonda Stanton and her all-female coaching staff, which I think is pretty cool. Taryn Kern, a freshman of the year candidate. She played travel ball with Megan Grant, which I think is noteworthy because they're two of the best freshman hitters in the country right now. She is leading the nation with 21 home runs. That's not, that's not leading freshmen, everybody. She is a freshman with the nation leading 21 home runs, as mentioned, freshman of the year candidate. They just swept Michigan. They're going to finish out at Michigan State. But I have been dying to ask Maddie Shipman her thoughts on Taryn Kern. Well, so I think we had a little bit of this discussion earlier in the year, but I'm going to bring it back because the first thing that I noticed from Taryn Kern is where she sets up in the box and she puts her toes right on the chalk line. And right there, that tells me that she has absolutely no fear. She is going up there to compete. And we've seen her win majority of the battles this year, batting well over 400 with the 21 home runs that you mentioned. And I think it's interesting too, looking at how teams pitch her because with her toes up on the chalk line, and I'm sure Michelle would agree with me on this as a pitcher, I'd be like back up off my plate. I'm trying to throw you something high and tight, but I think because she has so much power, teams continue to throw her low and away and a lot of off-speed pitches. But I think you're playing right into her wheelhouse. And she's able to get pitches low and away, drive them out to opposite field. And the a couple of times that I saw Michigan this past weekend try to throw her inside, drop balls low and inside, she turns on those. So I'm not saying she can't hit inside pitches. She absolutely can. I think because of her ability to get her hands out in front, 
is why a lot of teams continue to throw her outside. But I just love the extension that she gets on off-speed pitches and pitches low and away, maybe because I could never get extension on those pitches. So being able to see that happen so consistently from a freshman, I just think speaks volumes to what she's going to do throughout the rest of her career. But she'll also take walks too. She's got 39 walks on the year. She's been hit 19 times, and I think it's because her toes are right up there on the chalk line. But uh, she just continues to impress me, and I'm really hoping, selfishly hoping for an Indiana-Northwestern matchup in the Big Ten tournament. I don't know about you guys, but I would absolutely love to see that. Um, But we got to give some props to Northwestern, too, for clinching a share of the Big Ten title, second consecutive year that they've been able to do that. Um, I think it's interesting. I know we touched on it last week, how Northwestern has used Danielle Williams in the circle. Um, She's still starting games, but she's pretty much throwing in every single game, whether or not she's starting the game. She's come in in relief a lot, um, but she's still able to throw that devastating change up, move the ball so well throughout the zone. And again, it's a team that just doesn't panic when they get behind. I believe in two of the three games this past weekend, they actually came from behind and ultimately ended up sweeping the series. So they're just a veteran team. They play with poise. They play with confidence. And I think you're seeing the repercussions of that or the, the what's the right word for it? The reward of playing calm, cool, and collected when you are a veteran-led team with a ton of experience. Um, but I did want to give a, a slightly off-the-cuff shout-out to Sydney Supley, who they didn't have a midweek this past week, but she just went ahead and got on the headset and called the baseball game. So I thought that's pretty cool. She's been able to do a a couple of things throughout her career, but jumping on headset and calling a baseball game in the middle of your season, I thought was pretty impressive. Uh, She's impressive. She has a podcast. I know I see her post about it a lot and have a lot of cool guests. So I think that's a great shout out, Maddie. Um, One little note about Indiana. They have not made the tournament since 2011. Shonda Stanton did take over in 2017 and they were having a phenomenal season the COVID year that got shut down. So they were on track to make the tournament. And then there was a lot of controversy when they didn't make the tournament. And so I think this year they're really leaving no doubt. Uh, And this is going to be perfect leading into topic number seven, Michelle. Michigan is just three games over 500 and they play Minnesota this weekend. So Michelle, I think that may lead you to your uh, bubblicious or what was it? Bubblicious or, or what? (laughs) We got lots of names, so I'm going to explain it right now. So um, in the seven hole, we're going to talk about who's bubble-ish. Bubble-ish is for those teams that are on the seeding 14, 15, 16. So it's, there's also the, the bubblers out there that are, are they getting into the tournament? All right. Those are the ones that the RPI can be anywhere from 34 to the low 40s. And so those are the teams that really depends on who wins the AQs. If a couple of teams that aren't supposed to win the AQs win, it really pops out people that you think or teams that you think are going to make the the postseason. They end up not making it because uh, someone like an Oregon State, let's say that they were to win the Pac-12 AQ, then all of a sudden there's somebody else on the bubble that may not get in based on their RPI looking you know for for, uh for their ticket to be punched to the postseason so so the bubble-ish though we're talking about the seeds now one through 16 the bubble-ish teams are 14 15 16 and those would be based on the current today's um rpi and the nitty-gritty is washington is at 14 georgia's at 15 oregon is at 16 clemson is at 17 so 16, you would host 17. You're going somewhere else for the regionals. Bubblicious, those are the teams that are the seven, eight, and nine. And right now that's Texas at seven, LSU at eight, and Duke at nine. So those are the teams fighting for those one through eight seeds because you then, if you win your regional, you have the opportunity to then also host your super regional. So ladies, what, what are we thinking when it comes to the postseason? on bubblish and bubblicious as well as maybe some bubblers out there. Okay. So I'm I'm still trying to just process the definitions. I think maybe we should get t-shirts made, Michelle. Or, <laughs> like, I think we need some note cards or something. Uh, so just a couple notes. And I know Maddie, you and I were kind of chatting about this before we started taping. To me, Tennessee dropping to 11 in the RPI after losing two of three to Arkansas really stood out to me. I mentioned this earlier, the Stanford UW series this weekend, UW sitting at 14 as a bubble-ish team. 
I feel like with a really good weekend, they're going to secure their spot absolutely as a top 16 and potentially even jump to a top eight, which I know would be a big jump, but Stanford's sitting at three in the RPI. So it can happen. We've seen crazier things. Now, the team that I have the most question about, and I'm really intrigued and interested in your guys' opinion, is Duke. Where do we feel like Duke fits into this? Does anybody have any insight or opinion? Well, Duke has not played this crazy, amazing schedule this season, but their RPI sits really high, and they're aided by being able to play in the ACC. Because when you probably seven, eight years ago, before Duke entered the conversation, Duke and Clemson, Florida State was the only team that really pushed your RPI. Virginia Tech was favorable, but it the ACC was not helping your RPI numbers. With Duke, Clemson, Virginia Tech, Florida State really ramping up and those other bottom teams pushing the envelope, playing in that conference has pushed your RPI up. Duke, though, they probably won't be aided by the tournament unless they can knock off Florida State. And that matchup won't happen until the championship game based on the current seedings in the ACC. So I don't know that Duke is helped unless they actually win the ACC tournament to be able to boost their RPI into a situation to be a top eight seed for OKC or for the postseason. Okay, uh, uh, Maddie, go ahead, because then I want to throw in a couple of teams that are the bubblers, like, are they even going to get in? So go ahead, Maddie. Yeah, so before you talk about certain teams, I'm just curious to get everybody's vibes on this, because I'm looking at teams, and I'm looking at the RPIs, and I'm also looking at the rankings, and has there ever been a season where the discrepancy between where these teams are ranked and where their RPIs is is so drastically different? Like, I feel like in the past, they've kind of been similar, but... You've got teams like Northwestern, for example, that's uh, closer to 20 in the r- latest rankings. I'll have to look and double check that 18, 18. So right at 18, where their RPI is sitting at six. And so I, I know that historically RPI kind of lines up where teams ultimately ended up getting seated. But I feel like this season in particular, I think the committee is going to have to look a lot at the eye test, too, because there is such a drastic difference between where these teams are ranked and where their RPI is. Uh, yeah, Maddie, you read my mind because there's a few teams on this list and I'm kind of like looking at it and I look at them and I'm going to use Georgia as an example. Georgia's like a 15 in the RPI right now or whatever. And I look at them and they're a top eight seed to me, like where they're finishing in the SEC, their offense, their pitching staff's coming along. And I also think about like, obviously the preseason and, you know, early games are really important, but what are you doing for me now? Have you gotten better? Have you gotten worse? There's teams that are completely trending up that have won a lot of games lately. Arkansas, one of those teams. Like, I have a lot of confidence in Arkansas right now. Being able to beat Tennessee, again, a young team that started off maybe a little bit shaky, had some bumps in SEC play, but now are finishing stronger than ever. Like, that really is important to me. So when I think about the RPI, uh, Oklahoma State, a great example, too really, really great at the beginning of the season, have really gone down. And I know their RPI is going to go up when they play OU this weekend, but they're going to, if they lose, if they get swept by OU, they shouldn't be considered, in my opinion, a guaranteed lock-in number eight seed. So that's where I struggle. What are you doing for me now? Have you gotten better as the season's gone on? Have you won the big games? And like, for example, Duke, I don't know if they've won enough big games to your point, Jenny. So again, I know all these numbers and metrics go into it, but watching so much softball, seeing how these teams do on the field and how they're doing lately matters a lot to me. Well, and it's more than just Duke. You look at the Clemson conversation and they've been on the trend down. They have not been able to win the big games at the end of the year. They had a lighter schedule at the beginning of the season, and absolutely snowballed everybody. And then as they got into ACC play and were playing the top of the ACC, they have really struggled. So for me, Clemson is one of those teams that I'm concerned for, thinking that they may not get to host at all. And then you think about a team like Oregon, who can slide into that spot with a good showing at the end of the year, or and even those long shots like Wichita State and Central Arkansas, who have been trending up and had some really quality wins. I see them with an opportunity of the door is open for some of those squads to perhaps slide into that top 15 or 16. Kayla? Yeah, bold prediction. I don't think Clemson hosts strength of schedule at 60. They haven't won any of the big games in the ACC. I don't think they host. 
period. Kayla, I am with you on that. Now, my question to you about Oklahoma State, let's say if they get swept by Oklahoma, them not being able to host, what if Oklahoma State takes a game or two from Oklahoma? Does Oklahoma still go in as the one seed? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Nobody's going to take away the one seed from Oklahoma. Yeah, no, I There's think no yeah. way. Oklahoma stays up there at number one. Um, yeah, and I, I think, you know, that the crazy thing is, is when you go and you look at adjusted RPI, we were kind of mentioning it early how Tennessee dropped after losing two games, two of three to Arkansas. But how about LSU? They lost two of three to Alabama and they were eight entering and they were eight coming out. So I think a lot of people are confused, like what moves the needle and what doesn't. Now I do know the adjusted RPI, the difference is, is that you get bonus points. If you're winning or losing away on the road versus winning or losing at home. And so sometimes, you know, for, for instance, Oklahoma state, the three losses to Texas, they hurt obviously, but they didn't hurt as much as if they were at home. So, because they were on the road. So there's all those little things that I think, you know, kind of play into these really large decimal pointed numbers. Well, and I think we also put a lot of credit into the hands of the committee who isn't necessarily following the sport like the rest of the country. They are, they have other jobs going on. And I, it makes me nervous sometimes when those, when we hand it to the committee with a season like this, where it's been up and down so much parity, there's going to be some teams that get hurt. There's going to be some teams that get aided. And it makes me really nervous that we haven't put forward a really clear definition in terms of a season of wins and losses for a lot of these teams because they've had good wins, but some of these teams have had really bad losses too. Yeah. And it really comes down to parity. This is a year where a lot of the mid-majors, I mean, you can look at Wichita State, Central Arkansas, North Texas, Texas, Texas. I mean, they're just Louisiana. Some of the, the mid-majors have been outstanding, but real quick before we wrap up this conversation, when you start those, that that's really good stuff on um, bubblish and bubblicious, but the bubblers, the ones that are, are they even going to make the tournament? You guys, there are some big names out there that are I mean, may not get in this year. And when you start looking at RPI, um, just a, a couple, Michigan is at 39, Notre Dame is at 41, Missouri is at 44 right now, Ohio State 45. Here's a couple of big ones right here. How about Arizona State at 47? And we'll end it at this. And Jen, you can take over. Arizona is at 50. Oof. I cannot imagine a year where Arizona is not in the postseason, and this may be that year. All right, we're moving on to shagging stats. Michelle, this was you, but are you kicking it to me because you want to hear me say uh, shagging stats? I'm not very good at it. Maddie, since you're laughing so hard, I'll let you go first. Perfect. I'm going to have to compose myself after that. That was so great. Way better than I could have done. Um, but my shagging set actually kind of revolves around the pitchers, surprisingly, I know. Um, but Oklahoma, in the month of April, only gave up nine runs. I know we've talked about their pitching staff and their offense, but only giving up nine runs in an entire month to me is very impressive. Five of them came in those last two games in their series against Texas. For context, I looked at some of the other teams, too. UCLA has given up 24 runs in the month of April. Florida State given up 33. Tennessee, 45. So it just shows you how good and how solid Oklahoma's uh, pitching staff is this year. I'll bounce off with more pitcher talk. Uh, I'm going to put on my RTR hat. Uh, Montana Fouts, in her last 10 SEC starts, is 9-1. and one. Every single one of those games has been a complete game. She's got a .66 ERA in those games, a .148 opposing opponent batting average, 98 strikeouts to 14 walks, and six shutouts. Man, Fouts. She is playing some of her best softball that she's ever played in her career in the last few weeks. She and I love really her. I think catcher. she's <laughs> It's the chest bump. It's she's getting a lot of good frame jobs from yes. behind the plate. She, she's got it. <laughs> I love that. No, and Montana Fouts is maybe the best quality human being, too, to round out just how good she is on the diamond. And so I'm going to take this one to hit. I've talked about strikeouts in the past. I've talked about the long ball. But this one, I'm going to go to Oklahoma State. Shout out Rachel Becker with a number of 49. She set the single season on base streak record with 49 passing Vanessa Shippey. Um, big number for her. So congratulations, Rachel Becker, on setting the new uh, Pokes on base streak record. 
Awesome stuff. All right. Well, I'm going to jump in. Um, and my shag and stat for this week is 35. Since 1987, Arizona has made every postseason tournament. So 35 consecutive years, Arizona has made the postseason. The question is this year with that 50 RPI, will they make it? Two okay. Beat. Bear down, Arizona. Let's go. All right. There you go. Woo. <laughs> All right, my shag and stat, I want to um, take it to some mid-majors. So this weekend, we've got one of the most anticipated matchups. Boston U versus Lehigh are both 15-0 and 0 in conference facing one another. So pretty cool. I've, I'll have my eyes on that series. Okay, we're moving on down to number nine on the lineup card. We're going to the mailbag. We're going to go through just a couple of questions. So this is from a sappy nobody. Would you rather be a 16 seed knowing you'll play Oklahoma in the supers or would you rather take your chances on the road in the regional round? Maddie, what do you think? Give me the regional on the road, regional on the road. Absolutely. And can I make another bold prediction with this? I have this feeling that an SEC team is going to be matched up with Oklahoma and like a potential super regional. I just, there's a lot of teams that I think could be placed right in that spot. Um, But I think there are a lot of teams across the country that do not want to be in that 16 spot. So yeah, give me, give me regional on the road for 500. Yeah, well, and join me to the champ, regional on the road, regional on the road, because there is no way I want to be the 16, because you know who you're facing. And to get to Oklahoma City, you got to run through that train. I don't think that's happening. All right, I, I'm with you guys. Regional on the road. Well, yeah, we have a lot of t-shirts and chants after this podcast. Uh, all right, Madison Hoff, 24, has asked, if there was a picture of the year award, who would you pick as your winner? Michelle, as our resident pitcher here, who would you go with? Wow, uh, that's a tough one. Um, you know what? For me, it's got to be a pitcher that moves the needle, um, that's really doing something for a team, and that team would not even be close to uh, what they are uh, without them. So I would say right now, in the running, for me, it would be a uh, Montana Fouts or a Matty Penta. Um, just because of what they have done for their program. And, and uh, Maddie Penta does have Shelby Lowe behind her, but Montana Fouts, I think if uh, Alabama really goes deep into the postseason, it's all on her back. I 100% agree, Michelle. Those are definitely two that I have on the top of my list. And uh, one other one that I'll throw in there too is Megan Faramo. And I think that she is starting to pitch better and better and better as this year goes on. And she's another one. They've, they've got a pitching staff. They've got, of course, got other pitchers on that staff that are very, very good. But she has thrown majority of the innings. And I, and I think that's where looking at pitchers this year and how teams are using their stabs, it's just very different because the number of innings is so much lower or so much fewer for a lot of the pitchers across the country yeah but not for Faramo she's got 152 innings this year with 208 strikeouts she's been so good in the circle I'll throw out another one Maddie I know it's hard to be a homer so I will throw out Ashley Rogers I think she's been good in the circle for Tennessee and has been able to push that needle like you talked about to set the tone and then let the big bats behind that Tennessee's been rolling with this year be so successful Yeah, I think it is interesting. You know, normally you would look at the NCAA stats and there will probably be 20 pitchers that have over 150 innings. And this year it really is for Ramo, Fouts, Penta, maybe one or two others. So it's it's pretty interesting how the game has changed over the last five to 10 years. Yeah, I think Vodder from uh, Stanford might be the other, another one that has that's up there as far as innings pitch. But you're exactly right, Michelle. You just don't see a ton of pitchers across the board throwing 150 plus innings in a season. And I've noticed none of you have mentioned an Oklahoma pitcher in your pitcher of the year, which, you know, the Sooner fans are going to come after us for that because they've got three on the player of the year list. But it just goes to the conversation of that's a staff, right? So it's hard to have a pitcher of the year when they are so reliant on a staff. If there was a staff of the year, I feel like Oklahoma would run away with it. But pitcher of the year, I'm understanding what you guys are saying. Well, and each of the pitchers on Oklahoma's staff sit below 90 innings apiece. And so because of that, it's showing that they're being used together. Now, granted, a lot of them are run rule wins, right? So they don't get to get an entire seven every time they throw. But it comes down to, I mean, Ashley Rogers even has 103 innings pitched. So 
I, I, you have to find a breaking point to be able to say, where's the, where's the benchmark that you have to be above to be able to be that pitcher of note. Yeah. And I think similar to what Michelle was talking about too, when I look at, you know, pitchers of the year, players of the year, I kind of look at it as if you were to pluck them off of their team, where would that team be? And I still think that Oklahoma is absolutely stacked and coach Gasso makes her team that way to where if they don't have one player in the lineup for a certain day, they've got other players off of the bench that can equally step up and they're still going to win the games that they've done throughout the rest of the season. So I think it's strategic why they're like that. But I think when I, when I think of a pitcher of the year or a player of the year, that's kind of where my mind goes. Where would that team be had that player not been on that team that year? That's a great point. Um, For all of you guys listening, you can always send us mailbag questions at seven innings. This is something that we've been putting in the nine spot all year. Uh, Michelle, we did not mention that it is the beginning of mayhem. So we are officially on the road to the Women's College World Series. Thank you guys for joining us, Jen Schroeder, Madison Shipman, Jenny Dalton-Hill, Michelle Smith, and Kayla Bro. We'll be seeing you guys this weekend. Thanks for listening.